Welcome back to another edition of School of Science Radio. I'm Gino Ganello, joined by Chris and Adam. And guys, uh, I think a good amount to talk about today after our loss to Manchester City on uh, on on Saturday. Uh, things to talk about with that game, but things to talk about in, in general as well. And then, of course, our upcoming game against Tottenham this coming weekend. But first off, how are you guys doing today? I'm hanging in there. It's been a rough couple of weeks uh, in Everton land, but I think I think everybody's going to be fine. I uh, yeah, that's uh, ultimately kind of the feeling, isn't it? We you think based on what we've seen on the whole balance of this season that this will just be a blip on the radar in a couple of months, but uh, I, I do have a few concerns that it could develop into more than that, and I'm sure we'll get to talk about that throughout this evening. Yeah, whether or not it's a blip on the radar depends on uh, how we do in the next three or four games around the holiday period. Yeah, uh, the the next, even if you stretch it out that period out a little bit more, and you look at the next month and a half, uh, where basically after Tottenham this weekend, it's bottom half of the table opposition almost exclusively for a month or more. Uh, that's going to be what. What tells us where we are a lot more than uh, the city match did this weekend, but still yeah, interesting to take away from that uh, as well. After Spurs, we do not play a good team until February twenty third. Yeah, I was doing the the math today as as well. It's uh, it's a telling period. It's it's the sort of period that historically, over the last three or four years, has has been the thing that's tripped us up more than matches like. Uh, the one that we had this weekend have. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see where things go from there. Yeah, and I think we've already got a little glimpse of that already this season with the Washford and Newcastle games of how things could go um, and how things have gone really in the past couple of years. But let's just start with Manchester City. And you guys kind of brought it up already. Uh, really the question after the three games that we've had over the past uh, week, week and a half, Really, is the sky falling at Everton? Should we really be worried about the two points from three games? Obviously, we've talked about the two points that we've gotten from those two games against Watford and Newcastle and how those probably should have been better results. But does this make anything change anything? And really, was there anything that could truly concern us from this performance? Chris, you got anything that, that really concerns you about this? Or um, is, should we be worried at all? Or, or is this just, was Man City just kind of a game that, it was going to happen. I, I said going into this match that there was pretty much nothing I could see from the game that would concern me simply because of how good Manchester City are. And there's there's literally zero shame in going to the Etihad and losing. And Everton were, for long stretches of the match, quite competitive. Um, they actually surpassed Manchester City in the expected goals for the match and took it to them once they went down two to nothing. And, you know, you can argue about whether or not they should have tried to do that beforehand, but I kind of understand the strategy of not wanting to open it up too much or else it's going to be four to nothing before halftime. Um, there were some poor individual performances on Saturday. Richarlison and his two or three big chances that he just sent into the into Rosie or troublesome. Um but I, I think we've seen enough to think that he'll come back around. Um Seamus Coleman was bad enough that he got hooked at half or not at halftime, but um pretty early. I think he got hooked in around, around the sixty six 
65th minute. Yeah. So, but overall, no, I'm, I'm not concerned. I, I'm more concerned by drawing against Watford and Newcastle. And even then, I think these types of stretches happen in the season and it's good to get it out of the way in December instead of April. Yeah. And, um, ultimately I, uh, I agree with you on that. I think, uh, the, the thing that concerns me, um, most from this one is that I want to be sure that Adrisa Gay is healthy sooner rather than, than later. Um, but, I mean, to to go to City, like we talked about last week, I mean, they had a plus 25 goal differential at home through eight games. Um, so uh, for us to, you know, not have our uh, one of our most important players in Ghana and um, and still be able to be competitive, rightly, as, as Chris said, uh, absolutely competitive against the, a team that's, not a 100% city by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, they get closer and closer each week. They got KDB back this week. Um, so uh, yeah, when you're bringing one, De Bruyne and Sterling off the bench, you kind of just have to throw your hands in the air. Like what you can do. <laughs> yeah. Th- this one is, and uh, I think probably least frustrating of all of the top six games that we've, the away top six games that, that we've, we've had so far this year. Um, because I think it was the one that we probably felt uh, we were farthest away from taking a result from, which, you know, you, when you look at the underlying numbers, you might argue otherwise, but it, it kind of felt that, that way, certainly going down to nothing. Um, so this is one that I think in, in a month's time is, is a match that we're not even going to think about, um, you know, uh, unless something really crazy happens between now and then. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I I tend to, you know, agree with you on that. And, you know, it's – I mean, it's Manchester City. We talked about it last week about, you know, City going to be City. Obviously, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. So when you look at that game and you look back at it and you're like, oh, we missed this chance, that chance. And there's been comments made about it from players and managers where things could have changed if, if one chance goes in where Charleston bags that one, uh, that volley in the air. You know, so many things could have happened. But – they didn't, and I don't think anybody is extremely, extremely worried about the fact that they didn't. Um, but for um, for people that struggled, and Chris, you mentioned this a little bit. You mentioned uh, a couple players, but one person specifically that struggled in this match and, and has struggled, it seems, in the past couple matches was Yeri Mina. Um, had a tough time of things, a couple mishaps that led to a couple goals. Uh, is it time to return to uh, Zuma and Keen, Adam? Um, yeah, I think probably. Um, I'm not particularly, um, you know, really concerned about Yuri Mina in the long term. Um, I, I think that we've we've got three guys that we know on the whole we're we're pretty happy with. Um, there's no reason to keep trotting Mina out there if you think that we've we've got a better option. I think Kurt has been very consistent, very reliable this season you know I think that there always needs to be um dialogue between uh Silva and Mina about what his expectations are going forward and that you know Mina remains our our guy um going forward but if he's not playing at his best and I don't think anybody thinks that what we've seen from Yerry Mina in the last couple of weeks is is the best that he has to offer 
Um, it doesn't make sense for him to still still be out there. That doesn't send the right message to him. It doesn't send the right message to to Zuma to just be starting a guy because we think he's the guy long term and we think we won't have Zuma next season or what well, have you. Yeah, and not only that is is this this conversation is not even so much a reflection on Yuri Mina as it is a good reflection on Keen and Zuma both. They Zuma, you know, we gave up three goals, but I thought Zuma was one of the better players on Saturday. And Michael Keane has been maybe Everton's best overall defender in terms of actual defending um, all season. So, you know, I I would say that it is time to go back to Keane and Zuma simply from the perspective of we do at this point need to get the, the train back on the tracks. And I think they're probably the two to best help us do that. And of course, I mean, worth worth noting that, you know, we're going to starting on the, the 23rd, we're playing, what, three games in – Six days. Um, so, so there's going to be time for everybody, um, in the coming yeah. week, week to two weeks, or is it even four in, in seven? It's something ridiculous. Yeah, um, it is four and eight, maybe 23rd, 26th, 29th, and first, I think. Yeah. Um, and Everton have the second least amount of time. Yeah to rest between their holiday fixtures as any other team in the league. Uh, I'll let you get, just take a guess as to who has the most rest between their holiday fixtures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always Liverpool. I don't know. I think that's... Oh, it's it's I, not it's, it's not it's rigged fr- or anything. No, it's frustrating. It's just... It is what it is. But yeah, so I, we're going to see... You know, I don't suspect that we'll see Yerry Mina um, on Saturday against, uh, against Tottenham, or is it Sunday against Tottenham? Um, but we're going to see him at least once, if not twice, between now and the end of the Leicester match on New Year's Day. So everybody's going to have a chance to, to prove themselves again. And 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 just to confirm for you guys there, we play the 23rd at the home, Sunday. 26th away, the 29th away, oh. and then the 1st of January at home. So that's going to be our Christmas schedule so and then, then again in the fa cup on the fifth so it's not like yeah <laughs> thankfully we we did you know draw some luck there with home against lincoln city you know i i yeah. i don't suspect that any regular starter is gonna sniff that one um, um mason holgate might even get to play in that game mason holgate might even get to play in that game i would argue that mason holgate should play probably that game. should yeah i agree and you know it's bad if i'm saying that mason holgate should be playing but uh yeah after after that the stretch of games there and, and given the level of of expected competition in that yeah uh i think that that'll be honestly pretty well timed uh because it's a spot where you, you don't you don't feel you don't have a, a real conflict, you know, do I play my starters here or not? No, you, you obviously rotate. And if your second team can't get your result against Lincoln City, well, you've got bigger problems. But we'll talk about that in coming weeks, no doubt. Absolutely. And, and uh, again, the rotation is going to be a big thing uh, as we come towards these Christmas games and can often be tough. And, and hopefully we'll see some uh, a bit of – Man management here from Silva as we go through these this tough stretch of games that we're going to have here. Um, but sticking with the center backs, uh, we have, like you mentioned, we do have three center backs that we're very comfortable with. And, in fact, they all played on Saturday against Manchester City without Ghana playing. Uh, the, the lack of another central midfielder 
um, or, or a central defensive midfielder of Ghana's type. What was your guys' thoughts on this? Chris, do you think that this uh, formation – what do you think about this formation switch to a back five without Ghana? Did it work? What Did it make sense? What were your opinions on it? Um, I, I guess I kind of understood it from Marco Silva's perspective. I didn't really enjoy it or like it. Just I do think that it actually contributed to some of Yuri Mina's struggles because um, best I can tell, he has not played – in a back three, really much of his career, if any, um, with the Colombian national team, he's partnered with, uh, Davinson Sanchez from Spurs and with Barcelona, you know, they regularly play, a, um, two center backs. And so that, that was probably uncomfortable for him to begin with and reducing the midfield to two men against Manchester city ended up being a problem. Um, Andre Gomes and Gilfie Sigurdsson, as good as they both are, they had a little trouble without that third man in there um, escaping City's pressure. And, you know, you saw that in the form of a great many turnovers, which, again, it's Manchester City that happens. But I, I think if they had stuck with the two center backs and probably just played Tom Davis, so we would have had a little bit easier time getting the ball out. So all in all, I'm not crazy about it. Uh, you do remember – it's been a while since Tom Davis has gotten meaningful minutes. You do remember – what it looks like when he tries to pass, right? <laughs> yeah, no, he's not good at it, but it's more of it's more showing City that there's another option there than just letting Andre pass anyway. I uh, yeah, no, I understand that personally. I, I think I uh, I probably ultimately a, agree with with Silva's move. I, I it was not. It was not pretty. Nothing was going to be pretty from, well, even if Ghana was healthy, nothing was going to be pretty. Um, but, uh, especially without him uh, much maligned as his passing ability is Ghana. That is, it's still, I think, probably superior to Tom Davis. And I think he has a little bit of a better understanding of his own limitations than Tom does. Um, and I think that the putting, putting Tom, especially, who's had no meaningful game action really um, since Andre Gomes, Andre Gomes broke into the lineup, you know, just two months ago now um, uh, that does not feel to me like it's a spot where you're setting him up to have anything even approaching success. Um, and I'd, I'd rather put the extra burden on my center backs to do something that's a little outside their comfort zone and my central midfielders who I know I trust to do something that's a little bit more difficult than to put a, a, a burden on Tom in, in that setup against city here. Yeah, that makes sense. The one um, lineup decision that I did want to mention that I liked quite a great deal was uh, Dominic Calvert-Lewin up top. I thought he was superb. And I think that um, consensus is among those who viewed the match that he probably needs to be a more consistent option going forward. Um, you know, he, he didn't get that many scoring chances. He took the biggest one that he did and, uh, that he did get and scored. And he's just kind of a pain in the ass in ways that Richarlison is not, especially when you're not going to have the ball. Um, he holds it up better than Richarlison does and passes better. And, you know, at, at this point in time, it looks like he has a little bit more confidence in front of gold than Chink Tosun. So I would like to see him a more often during this upcoming uh, Christmas period. Yeah, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about strikers in a little bit. And um, I did. I, I tend to agree with you. I didn't necessarily. Uh, I, I liked what I saw of him this weekend. Um, I didn't necessarily feel maybe as strongly as you did at uh, for, from the end of that, that that maybe he's a guy we need to see going forward. But uh, more going forward. But 
the more I thought about it and looked at some numbers and things that we'll talk about in a little bit, um, I tend to agree with you that he should probably get at least one, if not more, opportunities to start up top in the coming run of fixtures um, in a game where Everton might actually be able to play something of a, a normal setup from the off. Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree with Chris here. You know, I think, and you, Adam, I, I think that um, DCL should get a little bit of a run out uh, out here after that performance. I mean, obviously, there's not much you can do against a team like Man City. They're just, I mean, it's City, so it's tough to create really much. Um, but I think he did a, a good enough job to at least earn another uh, another shot up there in a, in a situation like you said, Adam, where we're going to be playing more of a normal formation, something that. Uh, we'll typically see week to week as opposed to what we saw against City. But before we move on from City, there's an interesting stat uh, that was put in uh, that, that that came up about Ademola Lookman, and, and and the chart reads Everton chances created in open play over the last five games uh, between forwards and midfielders, and Lookman leads that in the first place with seven chances created in 179 minutes. But that's not the surprising part. The surprising part is that in the 33 away minutes that he played versus City, he created three chances, which was more than any other Everton forward or midfielder had created in the last five games combined. And that's, you know, Richarlison's 450 minutes, Gomez's 450 minutes, Gilfie playing 419 minutes, Bernard playing 310 uh, and, and Walcott playing in 255, all of them only two chances created from open play. Uh, we keep con- that keeps coming up, and we continue to ask: Is it time for him finally to get this extended run in the starting eleven over Walcott? Adam, what should be the next move with Wolfman here? Uh, yeah, I think, and again, as, as we've, we've said with personnel in the, the coming period, and I'm sure we're going to say it again before we're, we're done here. Everybody's going to get a look or multiple looks, uh, no pun intended, uh, in, in the coming weeks, but, but Ade is a hundred percent at the top of the list. Um, as we've, we've said, uh, before, he is a very different kind of winger than Theo Walcott is. Um, you know, Theo is, I, and it boggles the mind to say this, having watched him play the last couple of weeks, but Theo is traditionally more of a goal-scoring winger, um, whereas Lookman is, is a guy who's going to be more of a creator from, from that wide spot. Um, so uh, I, I think that getting that extra creative guy, even taking Walcott's form out of the equation completely, uh, is, is a positive especially as this team continues to struggle to find ways to get Gilfie Sigurdsson involved. Um, having an, another true creator on the field, uh, be it wide left or wide right, um, is is going to be something that, that we need to see more of going forward. Um, so that that is absolutely uh, an argument that, that he should should be out there. Just to rephrase my my own question from the outline that I wrote a little bit, would you consider, and this is for both of you guys, would you want to consider Lookman as the starting right winger now, just uh, in perpetuity moving forward over Walcott? So not so much should would you give him more looks, but this really would, would he start be be the official starting? Yeah, right we, you know we kind of have this settled 
starting 11, right, with um, the front three being Bernard, Richarlison, and Walcott, would you want it to be Lookman on the right semi-permanently? Um, in, in theory, yeah. In practice, I just have to see him from the start. Um, he has, he has tended to come into games, uh, this season as they have started to stretch, uh, separate uh, of, of anything that, that he's done. Now he's absolutely taken good advantage of the moment in the match that he's been brought in. But that's a specific strategy and a specific usage for a guy who you know um, is going to be particularly eager to take on and beat guys with tired legs. Now, that doesn't mean that he can't do it from the start as well, uh, but I, b- I, before I'd be willing to commit to that after the after this this the, the holiday period run of games, I'd want to see him get two or three starts and see, okay, can 65th-minute substitution, Adam Olofman, be a guy that, that we get something like that for 70 minutes, or is more of what we saw against Newcastle, Adam Olofman, the player that we're going to see through the opening 60 minutes of a game if he's in that that situation. Right, and I also, and I want to hear what Gino thinks, but I would also just add that I think one of the prerequisites to that move is uh, making Bernard the super sub and leaving Richarlison left. Yeah, agreed, and and playing probably Dom, but uh, you yes, know, some true striker, air quotes, true striker up top. Yeah, no, I I agree with Adam on this. Where I think that we need to give Lookman a, a couple starts just to kind of feel it out. Obviously, he knows what he's doing coming off the bench. He knows what he's running at, knows what the looks he's kind of going to get there uh, as he's running at players, and kind of I feel like he has a good idea of how. Um, you know, kind of attack players on the tired legs and whatnot. Um, but you're right in the in the Newcastle game, we didn't see as much of that. I think we need to see if he can, uh, you know, really um, figure out, you know, what defenses are going to show him right from the start, and, and see how he can work himself around that and create chances around that. Because if he can do that, uh, I'll be obviously more inclined to give him a like the permanent starting eleven role over Walcott. Um, not that, and this is not saying that Walcott has really done this either, because quite frankly, I don't think he has. Um, but you know, I think that Lookman what he's seeing, you know, cause a lot of times, not even tired legs, you're getting subs against Lookman as well. Um, and, and, and situations where, you know, the players may not be as good because they're not part of the starting 11. Um, so I think he needs a couple games to really get a feel for it. Um, but I think in the end, I, I'm hoping in the end, we'll see a, a Lookman that is ready to take over that permanent role as, as that starting right winger in Marco's system. Um, but moving on now, uh, we're going to go on to what is, uh, a couple problems that we have. Um, and we're going to start. And I guess we can call them problems. We'll start with with Shea, the Seamus Coleman question that we've brought up uh, a few times here on this podcast before, um, and and it's been brought up on Twitter repeatedly. And this is kind of why we're asking this question once more. And Adam, oh, I, I want to go to you first on this one. Has Seamus been as bad as 
everyone on Everton Twitter is saying has really been bad at all. What's the real, the real deal behind what Seamus is and how he's been playing so far this year? So I, I want to lead with this by saying that, you know, on, on the eye test, I can see what, uh, what folks are concerned about. Not necessarily agree with the extent of the, the concern raised, but I can at times definitely just see looking with my own two eyes and go, that wasn't necessarily so great. Um, that said, uh, when, when we're talking about Coleman, we're really looking at, at him as a creator, uh, coming from the right back spot. Cause that's obviously been something that's been very important to, um, to Everton really during his entire tenure as the starter, since he took over for Tony Hibbert. And then we're looking at, at his defensive contribution as he's still holding his own um, when the ball's in his own defensive third. I, I know one of the things that folks have uh, really uh, complained about a lot has been his crossing ability. Um, and there's something to that. But the reality is that Seamus Coleman has never been a particularly good crosser of the ball. Um, his crossing completion percentage this year is at 17.1%. Last year, it was at 16.6%. In 2016, 2017, it was at 22%. And the year prior to that, at, at about 18%. So he's, he's more or less in the ballpark of where he's always been in terms of completing crosses. His expected assists and his key pass numbers are almost identical to, to what they've been over the past four years uh, of his Everton career. And in terms of defensively, um, he's made 25 successful tackles, been dribbled past three times, uh, this season. That's his lowest dribbled past per 90, uh, rate of his, uh, since 2012, 13 season and his best tackle success rate since the 2012, 13 season. Um, so while I, I can definitely see it, it looks and feels at times, um, like he's lost a step or that something isn't quite right, and I can, can can get on board with that to an extent, the numbers are kind of bearing out that this is not a substantially different player than he's been uh, at any other point in his Everton career since he became a regular starter. Yeah, and, and Chris, I'm going to get to you. Uh, I, I want to hear what you have to say on that in a second, but uh, I'm interested in one thing from Adam. Do we feel that maybe – People are uh, in the Everton Twitter specifically is looking at Sheamus and not seeing maybe the same type of attacking, um, the attacking prowess as we normally see, and, and that's really the you know why they've been acting out. But is it because maybe he has better players in front of him now as opposed to recent years where he's had to do a lot of the offensive work, put in a lot of the crosses, and do a lot of work on offense that you know he doesn't have to do now because the players in front of him are significantly better than some players he's had in front of him in, in years prior. I, I don't know. I, I, I think, I think that uh, of particular interest, if you want to compare uh, uh, teams, his team this year to teams in the past um, is that Theo Walcott is not really um, the same kind of player that, that Seamus has has played with on the right a lot. Um, I know he had some success with Walcott last year, 
in, in a partnership on the right, but that was, it was under Allardyce and then Walcott's form kind of tailed off and uh, that, that is all noise to me. I'm not particularly interested in pulling any real conclusions from anything that happened last year. And, and when you go back before that, you don't have, um, another right winger, um, really that I can think of at any time that Coleman's been in the team and feel free to correct me, uh, who matches the Walcott profile kind of of that, that goal scoring winger, um, who, who is not necessarily going to look to be particularly involved in the buildup. So I, I, what I do wonder, especially it, as a byproduct of that, Everton's attack this year has so often been left side heavy. Um, obviously that wasn't as much the case against City because we didn't have the ball, but if we're talking about the season in a whole, uh, what, what happens with Coleman is that he is not on the ball a ton. Um, and what I, what I do suspect is that maybe some of the volume chances that he's creating just because so frequently last year and, and going back even longer than that, we were playing so much down the right that when he got, you know, uh, eight or 10 opportunities to, to work the ball down the right per game, three or four would come off and we'd forget about the three or four that, that didn't. Whereas now maybe he only gets, he's only on the ball four times, you know, down by the corner flag uh, in any given game, because we're trying to play through the left so much. He mucks up three of them. One of them is okay. And it doesn't come to anything, but the, the rate of conversion hasn't changed, but the amount of opportunities he's had has, and that skews the memory of, of, uh, how it's gone down it is the the best kind of explanation I think I could give as to how this this year's Everton on the whole might lead to a different perception of him than we've had in the past. I think Adam may be getting at my general point in a very roundabout way, and that is that I think Seamus Coleman is suffering from playing across from Lucas Denier. Um, <laughs> and I don't even, I, I don't even mean that in the way that you, you think I might. It's just that if you're watching the game and you watch Dinier and then you watch Coleman, that is pretty stark. And it's not because Seamus has been uh, completely atrocious. I mean, like Adam said, there have been some things that are worth being worried about, but it's just that Dinier has been one of, if not the best left backs in the league. And so you compare that with Coleman's production. It's like, well, damn, Seamus, step it up a notch. And it's, it's not, it's not all that meets the eye, I think, just because the other fullback has been so good that it's easy to criticize the right back because he's not cut, stepping up to that level of play. Yeah. And I think that it's important to point out, like, you know, like I said, that Seamus Coleman has not ever technically been, uh, in terms of a technical skills perspective, you know, a, a fullback who really wows you with that. It's been about his speed, which I don't think has particularly suffered, you know, even after even the after that, yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, incredible and good on him for that. Um and it's it's been about work rate and his ability to combine with whomever is on his side. And like I said, just volume of chances because we've been working down the right so frequently because we've been watching a a still Capable but aging, Leighton Baines down the left. Um, so, so I, I think that that there's a lot of there are a few performance things that are genuinely 
um, a little troubling that that the perception of which has been a lot more negative than they might be otherwise just because of other things that are going on around him that are outside of his control. Yeah, and uh, to your point, I think that most people would say that Seamus Coleman was at his best as Leighton Baines started declining, and Leighton Baines is, at least in his heyday, was similarly technically gifted to Lucas Denier, and now that you know, Denier is back to, you know, for lack of a better term, the level that Prime Baines was at. Then the sh- the spotlight shifts back to Sheamus, and it's like, well, why isn't he doing all that? Well, it's just because he's not that type of player. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. yeah, and and the other thing is, you know, we often everybody remembers Sheamus, like you said, Adam, for his for his speed and his barreling runs down the side, like the heart and passion that we always see from Sheamus and. You know, I, I think that kind of distracted us from, you know, uh, you know, a lot of some of the the technical things uh, that may not have been as great. But again, the volume that we saw that at, and you know, playing down the right so much may have skewed us a little bit in that sense. But I, I mean, I kind of get the sense from this question, from, from what our answers to the previous question, but I'll ask this nonetheless: Is there any need really to sign a right back next month? Uh, you know to back up Sheamus or, or, or anything like that, or say we just stick with Sheamus, John Joe Kenny behind him and just roll with that. Yeah. I'm not going to, tr- I would not, if I were Marcel Brands trip over myself to find somebody in January. Um, it, it's a lot harder to find a long-term solution like Lucas Denier in 30 days. Um, and plus we, you know, everybody else is in the middle of their season too. They don't want to sell players like that. So I think, I think it's also behooves you to give Seamus time to work it out, whatever it is that he's going through, which, you know, as we've discussed, maybe nothing. And, you know, John Joe Kenny's going to get a game or two and hopefully it's not against Ricardo Pereira in a couple of weeks because <laughs> God knows I don't need to see that again. But I, I think, I think for what Everton are capable of doing this season, Seamus Coleman's perfectly fine. Yeah, and I think as we've talked about in the past with John Joe Kenny, I know this is not the the where we started here, but it's worth mentioning if we're just going to talk about right backs in general. Uh, I don't know necessarily if John Joe Kenny is a guy that's going to be uh, the guy that we want as the backup at that position long term. But no, I so- should I did mean to say John Joe Kenny ain't it. But um, for six more months, um, yeah, you know. exactly, and and especially if you presuppose that. Even if there isn't anything terribly wrong with Seamus Coleman, even if you presuppose, which I think is reasonable, that he's maybe not performing to his peak, I certainly don't want to go out, spend money on uh, a backup, somebody to replace John Joe Kenny, thinking that they're going to be a backup, and then in another six months go, boy, you know, maybe we should just start a, uh, sign a starting right back as well. I the the situation at that position, while not perfect, is more than good enough for Everton's current ambitions. And over the summer, maybe it's that we need a backup. Maybe it's that we think uh, Seamus's time as a starter is done, and he should be the backup, and we should bring in a you know try to target a Dinier type uh, player. But either way, and neither of those things need to happen right now. Yeah, and I agree with you guys on that. No need to uh, really. Uh, make that a main priority, but something that many think may should be may uh, be a main priority or should be a main priority um, it is 
our striker situation, which has been an issue really um, for a lot of the season. And, and we've been fairly consistently poor. It feels like every week we get on this podcast, we talk about missed opportunities. And a lot of times it comes from, you know, those strikers who are just, you know, whether it be by luck that the goalies are saving them or the strikers just not putting away balls that they should be. Um, it, it's been a, it's been a theme for Everton this season. Question now becomes, and Chris will go to you on this first. Should they give up on Chank Tosun, find a new strike striker? Uh, if so, are there any names? Um, is there anybody else in the roster that may, uh, like DCL and then we, we talked about it a little bit, but I'm sure we want to get a little bit more in depth about him, um, that could be able to take over that role and we don't have to find a new striker. What do we do next really at this position? So the big problem here is that many of the strikers that fit Everton's profile in terms of A, affordability and B, want to join a, you know, a sixth, seventh, eighth place club in England are pretty much Chinktosun clones. <laughs> and so because of that, they carry many of the same risks, um, you know, unproven in England these kinds of things. And it just, it seems to me a lot like the Seamus Coleman situation where this is not quite bad enough yet to be worth pushing the envelope in January. Um, like it was last season with when they bought both Walcott and Tosun. And so I, I do think that if this continues a pace like it is with, with Tosun and, Richarlison having to play up front that that's going to be a serious conversation that we do need to have in the summer. But right now I think that there are just so many bodies capable of scoring a goal when they're playing well, that it's, it's, it seems more profitable to just stick it out. And like you mentioned, play Dominic Calvert-Lewin more. Um, I'm going to come fairly off the wall with a suggestion here. And that is um, Theo Walcott has played a lot of striker in his career for Arsenal and was not bad at it. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's a way that you could get him some more confidence when, you know, ostensibly the striker has presented with more opportunities to score. And if he sees one goes in, goes in, who knows what happens, but I just, I don't like the idea of giving up on Tosun in 12 months and, I don't like the idea of having to force a move for somebody that also doesn't work out and we have to do this all over again in 12 months. So I think the answer is play Dominic Calvert-Lewin more, play Chink Tosun several times over this holiday period and see what happens in July. I, I, on the whole, I think I agree with most of what you've said, Chris, but what I do want to preface all of this with is, is you know, Gino said that, that we've had uh, struggles converting in front of goal um, in terms of our strikers. And I, I'm just, I know that that is absolutely the conventional wisdom as it stands. I, I'm just not sure that I buy that um, in reality. And I'll tell you why. Um, Richarlison this year has eight goals in the Premier League. Um, his XG is at 5.7. So he is overperforming what what you would expect um, of an average striker. I I know he had a pretty um, obvious miss against City, and obviously that that sits at the forefront of the mind. Um, But on the whole, you're kind of hard-pressed to come up with 
a ton of other chances that Richarlison as a striker um, has not converted. Now, we can have a completely separate conversation and should um, about whether or not he should be playing striker at all for a host of other reasons. His ability to put the ball in the back of the net when it gets to him in front of goal, though, is not really one of them. Um, Shenk Tosun, obviously, it, uh, jumps a little bit more off the page um, when you think of missed opportunities. But this is also a guy who's had he's had five opportunities this year um, that have been shots of an XG higher than 0.10. So basically goes in 10 percent of the time from an average striker. He's converted two and he's missed three. And one of them was that ridiculous save uh, at the end of the first half against Newcastle that, you know, we all got on and talked about after that match and said, well, you know, there, there's not really anything else that he can do about that. It was it was a pretty, pretty decent play to get on the end of it. And the keeper just made a really good save. He couldn't he couldn't have done any better to finish that. So I'm not sure that I necessarily buy that Tosun has huge problems in front of goal. And no, and he's he's been a good finisher throughout his career, yeah. and he scored five goals last season in a Sam Allardyce system. So he's obviously capable in ways that Omar Nias isn't, and uh, even in ways some of the other strikers in the Premier League aren't. I think Chink's problem is, uh, again, the, the right-back and striker situation, there are a lot of parallels. His problem is simply one of perception in that Richarlison is flying high and he's cool and popular and he dances like a pigeon. And, <laughs> you know, Chink, his misses have been high profile, right? Because the, and I, I mean, no offense to any, anybody here, but you know, the average watcher of Premier League games sees that chance against Dubrovka and Newcastle and think, wow, that was point blank. Why didn't he put that in? And it's just not that simple. Um, so, you know, Chink's misses have been fairly high profile and so have Theo Walcott's, but the, he's scoring the goals for the most part that you would ex- expect him to score. Yeah. And, and Theo is one, just as a side note for the record, that I would agree that the perception of Theo is and his finishing so far this season is what the numbers bear out. And I think is fair to say that he is. Struggling yes. in front of I, I agree. And sometimes Theo has instances where he doesn't even get a shot off because mm-hmm. it looks like he craps himself. Yeah. And, and those don't show up on the expected goals charts that we can review and analyze. Those are just yeah. kind of lost into the ether. But um, that's a, you know, Theo's got, I would go so far as to say Theo has more problems than Tosun does. Yeah, uh, pretty straightforward. And and then the last guy uh, who we've we've talked about some um, is Calvert Lewin, and now he's got three Premier League goals this season in 476 minutes of play, which is not a ton. Some of it's come on the left wing, some of it's come in a substitutes appearance, and that's he's got three goals on like 1.7 xG. So he is, you know, performing. Above what, um, what I think you, you might perceive, uh, looking just at the shots. And he's only taken 13 shots in the Premier League and he's got yeah. five goals. That's, this, that's a pretty good fucking conversion rate. And he's it, got, and he picked up two in the League Cup as well. Now, obviously, lesser, uh, you know, lower level of, of competition, um, and all that. But I mean, if we're going to talk about pure conversion rates, I'm not particularly interested in, who the opposition is, it's about when the ball gets to your foot in front of the net, you know, 
are, are you putting in a place where it's hard for the keeper to get to it? And he had two more there. So I, I think as, as you've alluded to and, and I alluded to earlier, I think that if, if we're going to talk purely about conversion in front of goal, I, I think that Dom's got to have another shot as well. And to, I suppose, wrap all this up, my point ultimately is that no, I don't think Everton needs to pursue a striker this January because they've, they've got guys between those three and, and like Chris said, and Walcott as, as well, who I think have not underperformed to the extent that is perceived or maybe haven't even underperformed at all. Um, but there have been one or two big misses that stick in the mind as happens on every team with every striker anywhere since the dawn of time. So one last thing, based on what you're telling me about uh, Calvert-Lewin and Richarlison's expected goals, this problem, and I'm using air quotes, this problem might get worse before it gets better if they re- regress to the mean. Well, the thing about Dom's goals is that they've come on so few, um, few yeah, shots that's true. that I'm not, I'm not, uh, it's hard to make head, head nor tails of that. Um, Richarlison, again, <sighs> Because the only thing that we have to judge him on before this season is what happened at Watford last year. And there were obviously a lot of variables in that where ultimately, yeah, he underperformed his expected, excuse me, his expected goals, you know, pretty substantially last year. But a lot of stuff happened there. The eye test tells you based on Richarlison's finishing ability, watching him play this season, that he could be a guy who, on the whole, converts at an above average rate. It is, you know, is, well, yeah, is that 20, was gonna... is, is 20 or 30 percent over the, the expected rate sustainable for a guy like him? No, probably not. But it's somewhere between five and 15 percent over his expected goals, something that, that he could produce on the regular. Maybe. And if that's the case, then I, I don't think that you would see likely a, a pretty uh, a big regression to the mean um based on his finishing again if you assume which you can argue about the evidence for it if you assume that he's a guy who can finish a little bit above the expected rate yeah you you just made the uh, point that i was going to make just much more eloquently and Thank you. that that was going to be that uh Richardson knows how to hit a football yeah, yeah and that's that is at the end of the day i can put as many numbers and words to it as i want but at the end of the day you're right you look at the guy and you go that that guy knows how to kick a ball <laughs> yeah and and just to continue with the calvert lewin uh discussion i mean just looking at his stats and, 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 you know, over other than the last game before that, his previous uh, eight games, I believe it is 63 total minutes. He did have a goal <laughs> in that um, against Crystal Palace in a very pivotal game where yeah, it was a huge goal point where it was the 87th minute. He comes on and in eight minutes bags a goal. Chang Tosun gets a goal too. And we win that game two nothing. Um, and, and we don't, you know, don't think twice about it. On top of that, the only other games that he's played meaningful minutes in this year are against Rotherham, where he bagged two goals, um, against Huddersfield, where he had a goal, which earned us a point, um, and then against West Ham, where he played primarily on the wing there, mm-hmm. and then against Arsenal, who a top-six opponent. Um, and, and I think the other thing with Dom is that 
we have seen him be in the right position and be able to head those crosses in, which has been something that has been a bit of an issue for us in terms of the fact that we cross the ball so much, but nobody seems to get on the end of it. Yeah, and whether that means- the quality of the crosses or not, you know, that's a whole nother discussion. But the fact that Dom can head the ball in and be in that right place goes a long way. And like you said, you know, it's we're looking at a very small sample size here in terms of shots um, and then the amount of goals he has from those shots. But still, um, I think that would incline all of us to agree that he probably deserves another shot um, up top to, to see what else he can do um, in, in another game or two, no? Yeah, uh, agreed. And I think that, that you've actually just raised a, a very important point about his heading of the ball, which was not something that, that I had, had thought of. And, and you're right. Um, and I just pulled it up right now for his career at Everton. So going back to 16, 17 until now, he's scored uh, eight goals in the Premier League, uh, two with his right foot, one with his left foot, five with his head. Um, <laughs> and his his XG... With his right foot is 3.4, and he's got two actual goals. So he's underperforming with his right, uh, about level with his left, and he's overperforming with his head, which that maybe is a sentence that we can't actually say on air. But um, <laughs> uh, you're right that, again, if if for better or worse, Silva ball looks a lot like getting the ball out wide and whipping in a metric F ton of crosses, you know, until somebody puts a head on the ball. Well, there's your guy, a guy who's got, you know, five of his eight Premier League goals with his head and who is pretty consistently overperformed the expected value therein. Yeah, and I'm, again, I'm going to do something less eloquent than Adam, which appears we're just going to stick with this bit now. But, uh, you know, uh, Dom is, uh, big, he's tall and he's fast and he's strong. So that, uh, that checks out. Yeah, no, it yeah. does not come as any surprise based on the eye test that big guy had ball good. I mean, that's, yeah, <laughs> that pretty much checks out. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely. So that'll be definitely something for us to look out for. Uh, as we head forward, but I think we're all in agreement that the striker situation isn't at the dire point of absolutely needing to get somebody in January. Um, who knows if that changes over the next few weeks, but mm-hmm. we'll see. Um, but nonetheless, let's move on to the final thing we need to talk about today, and that is Tottenham coming to Goodison, the first of the top six, I believe, this season that are going to come to Goodison. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our first chance to to see that and see how Everton perform at home against one of those top six. And just a little bit about Spurs. They sit in third place right now. Um, have a have had a pretty bad injury record uh, over the course of this season. They, they really haven't had great luck with that. Um, and a question on that becomes, you know, just in their specific um, realm of, of you know title contending and whatnot. This team, this team stays more healthy. Are they a, a title contender up there with Liverpool and Manchester City? Or, or at least in the discussion, or do we see them kind of just sitting where they are right now, uh, healthy or not? And, and Adam, we'll go to you on this one. Um, I think that without a doubt, uh, Tottenham has has genuinely had just some garbage luck with uh, with injuries this season, um, more so than Liverpool, more so than than um, City. Um, but the thing about bad injury luck is that it affects teams that have no depth more than those that do. And when you're a contending 
top four Premier League team and you spend all summer without adding any new players while Manchester City just had, you know, the best hist- the best season in uh in Premier League history and Liverpool went out and, and added Jordan Shakiri and Nabi Keita and Alisson and, and so on and so forth. Um even when you get bad injury luck, you still in a way get what comes to you because if you're down two central midfielders and now you have to play Musa Sissoko as a true deep lying mid, well, you've kind of made your own bet there. Um, so do I think it would be closer? Uh, yeah, I, I think that they, you know, they certainly have a couple more points than they, they do now, probably. Um, if, uh, if they'd had a little bit better, better injury luck, and I think that they probably wouldn't have had to sweat out their passage to the Champions League round of 16. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, because they've not got the depth of those top two teams and, and they've not made the moves that those top two teams have had, uh, have made. Uh, I, I just think it's still a little bit too big of a gap for them to bridge right now. It's weird, right? Because with, if they had had, you know, 50, 60% fewer injuries, or if they had actually bought a single solitary player in the summer window, I would have been like, yeah, they're, they're nailed on for third place, you know, city and Liverpool, uh, a, a cut above, I think Spurs. Yeah, they can definitely be the next best team, and uh they're in third place. And that I think really speaks to the job that Mauricio Pochettino has done. That he's mm-hmm. been able to to get by with this group of players. You know, um they started against Burnley on Saturday. Somebody named Oliver Skip, which seems like it should be a character in a musical. And lo and behold, he's a Premier are, League player. Are you telling me it's not? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> news to me. I mean. Yeah, what's going on? But to to the original point, I mean, the injury luck has just truly been really unlucky. And I I don't hold the animosity for Spurs, and I think you guys probably agree with this. I don't hold the animosity for Spurs in the same way that I do for United or Liverpool or even Chelsea. But you know, they they're currently without Davinson Sanchez, Eric Dyer, Victor Wanyama, Musa Dembele. They've been without Deli Alley and Christian Eriksen and Toby Alderweireld and Jan Vertonghen at points this season and. You know, the fact that they're in third place is really a miracle. And you know you're unlucky when your latest injury is Eric Dyer is out for a month with an appendectomy. Like, I mean, what are you going to (laughs) do? Yeah. Well, I have, I have a, I'm a little different. You know, my family members happen to be Tottenham fans. So my, uh, I guess hatred or, or, dislike for them comes comes from that more than anything else it's on a personal level (laughs) yeah i probably 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 don't like them a little bit more than you guys do but one player that uh, that i do like on their team specifically just to go off on a little tangent here is is Min son who if it wasn't for his team winning the asian cup i believe he'd be unable to play soccer and and being listening in the, the the military which i think is something that's that's just unbelievable to think about with the goals that he scored over the past few weeks, uh, just showing how good of a soccer player is and, 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 uh, what amazing thing it is that he could not even be playing soccer, uh, if his team didn't win that, that cup competition, uh, earlier this year. Um, but moving on, you know, like we've said, they're in a world of hurt right now. They, they're this past weekend's lineup, like you mentioned, it involved Oliver skip and, and, Musa Sissoko in the midfield, Ben Davies at center back. You know, they have a lot of injury issues. And, and Chris, 
With that said, how winnable is this match for Everton because of those injuries? I, I do think it's fairly winnable. I think it's the perhaps the most winnable game against the top six that Everton will have played this season. I mean, uh, not the least of which reasons is because it's at Goodison Park. And, you know, we've been good at various times at home this year. And uh, there's not um, there's not a sense that I have that Tottenham are going to get any of these injured players back before the weekend. I doubt that they start Christian Eriksen on the bench again. Um, against a, you know, you can afford to do that against Burnley. You probably can't against Everton, but I, I'm hopeful here. I think we can at least get a draw. And, you know, if uh, everybody's, if Adrissa Gay is back in particular, I would not be surprised to see Everton nick all three points here. And maybe that's, maybe that's a little pie in the sky and on Everton. With the optimism again, Chris, come on. Maybe no. it, Maybe it's a little it's it's very un Evertonian of me, but I have I have a little bit of hope about this one. I actually have something on the calendar for Sunday morning, so you know they'll be the top sixteen sixteen when I can't watch. <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm hesitant to add more optimism, uh, but the the other thing that's that's worth noting and kind of goes hand in hand with with the the ongoing injury issues um, is that. Tottenham plays on Wednesday this week. Um, they're, they're at Arsenal in a Carabao Cup quarterfinal. Um, and I know that the. And that's normal, an emotional, you know, rivalry matchup as well. And, and even, uh, yes, correct. And even if you were to look at that match and say, mm, they, they probably don't care about the Carabao Cup, you know, they'll, they'll roll out most of their second team. Well, you see, the thing about that is that most of their second team right now is actually their first team uh, with the injuries that they've had with um, with Christian Eriksen only just coming back uh, it, it, in the center of defense and in the center of midfield. Uh, even I, I don't know what their next level down on the depth chart even looks like if Oliver Skip is starting a Premier League game. Now, their Premier League game this weekend was against Burnley, and it was at home, so, you know, perhaps Pochettino's kind of playing his cards there, thinking I can get away with not having any midfield against Burnley because they're they're terrible, and I'll I'll save my my midfielders for a, a derby match in a, in a cup competition and a, a more difficult trip to Everton the following weekend. But it's... It's hard to see a way wherein there aren't at least going to be a few guys that are going to come to Goodison on Sunday uh, playing their third game in a week. Um, and that, given that some of those players who may even be doing that are not necessarily first-choice options to begin with, the opportunity is there. You have to say it. The opportunity is definitely there for, for Everton to make something of this. Yeah, I just don't know where you go from Oliver Skip because he, you know, he's barely 18 years old. Do you start dipping into the U16s? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and they can they can get creative um with their midfield because in the center midfield a little bit, you know, you can drop Deli Alley into a deeper role, you can drop Christian Eriksen into a deeper role, but I mean, you you could do that against Burnley and and probably get away with it to do it against Arsenal. Um it, with the firepower that Arsenal has, it seems suicidal. Well, and uh, to to, and, to your point, Everton's midfield is probably when they're all playing their best, better than Arsenal's. Um, oh, you, I mean, the, if you not, roll out, if you yeah. roll out Oliver Skip and Musa Sissoko at Goodison Park against Gomez and Ghana, you're gonna have a bad time. Yeah, 
And I think that, uh, I think that Potch has to already be looking ahead and thinking, you know, boy, if, if gone is healthy, you know, how, how do I work my way out of that? Especially if he again also has to play somebody like Ben Davis at center back. Um, it's, it's a nightmare for him. And I would feel really bad if it wasn't about to play into Everton's hands. <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, and, 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 you know, we talk about the midfield and, and the pressing specifically, you know, players like that, especially like an 18 year old Oliver Skip, who has not obviously played much, um, at a top level or Ben Davies playing out of position and, and that pressing from Ghana, we, we've seen the type of pressure that this midfield and, and these attackers can put on teams and that could really become an issue, um, if they're at top level again on, on- I, yeah, I would, uh, be very excited to see how Oliver Skip handles the Gay up in his business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be uh that's that, that'll be an interesting matchup if we do get that one for sure. Uh but really just to wrap things up here before we go into predictions, let's talk a little bit about the games we've played against the top six and as we now finish off the the top six for the first time this year, uh, finish off playing all of them. Played all of them away but nonetheless, is there anything that we can take, any lessons we can we have learned from these matches against the top six so far this season that Everton can take in this match? Adam, we'll go to you first. Um, I don't, I don't know. Again, as as we've said, the status of of Spurs as they come in is such that I just don't know that the challenge that they will present, both as their in their normal course of business and also with the injuries that, that there's any specific tactical, you know, uh, lesson that we can take. But what I will say is that Everton have been in the match 100% competitive with every team near, you know, around Spurs in the table away. Um, and we can talk until we're blue in the face about what points they should have or, or shouldn't have. I, I wrote a post up on it today that ultimately, you know, Everton is is out of time to to be coming away from matches with moral victories. And, and we've had a lot of moral victories um against against these top six teams on the road this year where we felt like we've played well um and, and just haven't gotten the result through anything from, you know, a moment of brilliance to a moment of calamity and anything in between. Um the the lesson that I think Everton has to take into this is that They've proven that they can hang with teams like this on the road and they're going to be at home and they're going to be the more healthy and the more well-rested of the teams. And they should feel, dare I say it, confident or at least feeling like they can play a game that gets at Spurs, that they can go after Spurs. They don't have to sit behind the ball and play, you know, a defensive or reactionary game based on what we've already seen them able to do against teams that rolled out better 11s at least than Spurs probably will on Sunday, even if Spurs on the whole are a better team than Arsenal or Chelsea or or United. I want to go a little bit more specific than that here, and that is to say that um, I would like to see Everton relying on building play and creating chances through their midfield um, against Spurs more than they have against the top six already this season. Um, Specifically against Manchester United and Arsenal, you can argue pretty coherently that um, 
the Blues had a su- superior talent at least in the midfield than those two teams, and you, you still saw us rely on Lucas Denier quite a bit, Bernard, and to a lesser extent Seamus Coleman. You know, odds are at this point it's looking like Everton are going to come to this game with uh, advantage in midfield and just let Andre Gomez and Gilfie Sigurdsson in particular do their thing. And I think that the results will come along with that. Um, the, Lucas Denier is going to be better off in the long term if he's not having to be the creative hub. Yeah, and it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see how how things um, play out in that aspect. But uh, like you guys have said, I, I think that we definitely have the ability to go and attack these these top six teams. We've shown that we have the ability away from home, at home, with the crowd behind you. Uh, it, it should be even more of that, and hopefully that shows uh, against this top six side against Spurs. Gets us back on track, um, really playing some good football again, hopefully getting back to, you know, some of the stuff we were doing before uh, the, the past real week, week, week and a half. Um, so, guys, before we finish, go with predictions real quick. Real quick, Chris, we'll start with you. I didn't want to do it, but I'm going to. Um, I'm going to say 2-1 Everton and – so one of the things that I look at from this match aside from Spurs midfield is that their fullbacks, particularly uh, Kieran Trippier, they're not that great um, in terms of doing fullback things uh, like defending. And I think that if Marco Silva plays Richarlison on the left, um, he is there to be had. You know, Danny Rose is not the player that he once was for whatever reason. He's had some some different uh, troubles going on, particularly with injury and I just think that, you know, Spurs are obviously good enough to get to, to get behind Everton's defense, but this feels like we're setting up for a rebound. It's at home. We've had, we'll have had, um, over a week's worth of rest at this point to get Ghana back from his knock. And, uh, I, I like the guy's ability to, to, to get one back here. Adam? I am not as optimistic as, uh, as Chris. Um, here's what I will say. Um, obviously we've, we've talked about a lot of the factors that go into this, that Spurs is, you know, it's going to be in a tough spot here, you know, no, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. This is a match that I think we will see in a month or two months as, as one that determined either it, it was a, it was a turning point and we got things going in the right direction from here, or it was the match where we started to realize, uh oh, we're in trouble. Because I, I just have not yet been 100% convinced that Marco Silva can be a guy who turns things from when they are bad into going right again. And I'm just starting to get a little bit concerned. That said, I think Everton comes out, plays a pretty good game, uh, but can't, can't quite do enough to secure all three points. I think it's probably a 1-1 draw that we walk away from much like we did every game that we've played against the top six this season, feeling like maybe we could have had more. And in just one or two vital moments, uh, we, we came up short. And don't call it a moral victory, damn it. And well, and, and that'll be, it will, it will feel like it, it could feel like one, um, to, to get a one, one draw here. But again, unless there is a miraculous <laughs> turnaround in, in health for Spurs between now and then, 
I think this is a match that if you want to be the team that you say you want to be, you have to win it. Yeah. yeah. I agree on that for sure. And I think that, uh, I think that this will be a very telling game for us as we, um, as, as we move forward in the season. And, and I think this will show a lot of who we are, where we're at right now after the, the disappointing you know, week, we, we, week and a half we've had. Um, I also agree because I can't be optimistic about anything that involves Everton that will probably draw this one, which is more optimistic than I want to be. Um, just cause <laughs> it, it, it never fails that I watch this game with my, my brother and my dad who are Tottenham fans and Tottenham comes out and scores a goal in the first five minutes. And I have to just want to beat my head through a wall. Um, but I think we get a draw out of this one. I think it ends up possibly jump-starting maybe a little bit of a feeling better about this team and, and goes forward and hopefully grabs some W's over the the Christmas uh, Christmas matches. But, guys, thanks for joining me as always. Uh, that's all we have for today's show. If you guys out there, keep listening, keep following us on Twitter. We'll talk to you guys next week.